It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Daily Premier League news and views. This is Football Social Daily. Hello, this is Football Social Daily, the middle point of a very short week, but still loads to go out when it comes to the English top flight of football. This is your daily Premier League update, but today it is more European-based as we look back to last night's action and forward to tonight's action. It was a different story for the champions-elect and the current champions of the Premier League as Manchester City overcame Borussia Dortmund in their Champions League tie. For Liverpool, they went down 3-1 to Real Madrid, needing a real performance in the second leg if they're going to proceed to another Champions League final at the end of this European journey. And as for Chelsea, well, they face FC Porto tonight. They were being touted as one of the favourites to lift the Champions League, potentially this season, but after their 5-2 defeat against West Brom at the weekend, maybe there's just a couple of question marks emerging over the tactical nous of Thomas Tuchel in the Chelsea dugout. It's also Wednesday, so we're going to be taking your questions in the AQA section of the podcast. Any question answered. And those questions will be answered, hopefully, with some competence today by Matt Pidd. How you doing, Matt? All right, lads. And we've got Ian Brennan on the podcast as well. How are you doing, Ian? I'm good, thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll try and be competent. It's <laughs> all we could ask for. A, a minimum <laughs> level of competence is the is the expectations we have for this podcast. Well, you know, um, so, some weeks we fail, some weeks we win. Who knows? <laughs> exactly. Right, let's kick off with Manchester City, your team, Matt. It was Manchester City 2, Borussia Dortmund 1 last night in the Champions League. And it went right to the wire in the end. It was a late full phone goal that sealed victory in the end. Did it look like Manchester City's Champions League jitters were going to strike again for a little bit? Did it look like it was going to be another case of City falling at the final hurdle? Well, both teams had big games over the weekend, you know, with City beating Leicester and um, Dortmund losing to Frankfurt, which was um, a bit a massive game for them and it put a massive dent in their uh, chances of getting Champions League football next season. I think like seven points behind them now in fifth mm. and uh, Frankfurt fourth. Um, both teams started off evenly. You know, but um, Emre Chan, he um, he give away a couple of dodgy balls in the first half, but then there was one that was that was pounced upon. Um, 
you know, De Bruyne put it into Mares and Mares with decent composure to pick out De Bruyne again and slotted it into the net. But City were a little bit sloppy in possession. Um, that's partly down to what Dortmund did with their pressing game. Um, Rodri losing the ball on the edge of the box and Royce nearly getting in. Um, Bellingham was really, really impressive as well. You know, he should have had a goal in the first half. Mm. You know, it's not, it's not even arguable in my, in my, um, my opinion. Well, unfortunately, the referee blown his whistle before VAR could really have a look at it. And you know, City, we've had a number of big decisions go against us, especially in um, Champions League knockout games. You know, so sometimes it swings and roundabouts. Sometimes those decisions go fire. Sometimes they don't. But overall, you know, the first half was pretty even. Second half. You know, Dortmund stepped up a little bit more. Um, when Haaland, you know, bullying Diaz, who's been not, not even arguably for me the best centre half in the Premier League this season, put him right on his face. And fortunately, Edison came out and um, made up for his mistake that he made in the first half. Foden had a couple of chances, you know, one right on the hour, but unfortunately, he put it right, right down the keeper's throat. But Foden. For me, last night was our best play. He's shown some great quality on the ball, um, beating Dorman's defence mm-hmm. on numerous occasions, just gliding through. I think uh, is it Matteo Mori there, their uh, their right back last night. You know, he must have been having nightmares about mm-hmm. him last night in the hotel. He was going through him like a knife through butter. Um, but this was City's Champions League jitters that you were just mentioning there, Jim. You know, failing to score that second goal. You know, after having so many chances and having so much of the ball. You know, they were being wasteful. The longer the half went on, you just knew that Dortmund were growing more and more in confidence and, you know, thinking they was going to get a goal. Do you think there's a bit of a mentality issue here, Matt, for Manchester City? Is there a bit of a fear factor when it comes to the Champions League? Because they're a team that play, in general, with such confidence. They never look hurried, they never look panicked. Yet, when it comes to the Champions League, they seem to look like a different team sometimes. So I wonder whether that talk, that pressure, the idea that Pep's not won the Champions League with City yet and he was brought in to do just that, I wonder whether that has a mental impact on the team. It, it, that comes from the fans also, Jim. There's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on the players to, to win this European Cup for City. It's, it's been there for a long time now. There's, there's no secret about that. And it must also, it must, it must linger in, in back of the players' minds sometimes, especially like when I was saying, like, the longer the game went on, you know, there was, there was always that chance that Dortmund were going to get that uh, get that equaliser and get that away goal that City would have been absolutely fuming about because that was that was one of the things that I was thinking about before the uh, the game last night. Just just let's keep a clean sheet. If we get a one 0 win, you know, great. I just didn't want to concede that away goal, but ultimately they deserved it. And you know, at that level, you can't afford to waste the opportunities that City did. But luckily, you know, Foden. Um, he he pulled one out of the bag last night, and you seen it in his celebration. He was he, there wasn't really a lot of celebration from him, and that just goes to show you that his mentality that he has. You know, he, he knew that he'd missed a couple of chances beforehand, and he knew he should have had at least one mm. goal beforehand. So you know, City, you know, they would have been they would have been ruining the uh, the opportunities that he missed. But fortunately, we got the goal that you know Foden's play deserved, and you know it was an important winner. In a game where it's only half time in a tie, and um, yeah, so yeah. there's there's a you know there's 90 minutes still to be played over at the uh, Signal Duna Park, but Pep's already came out and said City won't come out and defend. They'll they'll um, they'll adjust their their pressing a little bit. They'll adjust the tactics a little bit. But City are going to want to ultimately go out and win the game over there because you know in in these types of games you know like like I was saying about Bellingham's disallowed goal and you know Foden getting a 90 minute winner. These these Champions League games sometimes it's the small margins that's decided it and luckily it decided it in City's favour last night. Matt's already given his view on that Jude Bellingham disallowed goal, Ian. It was the big talking point from last night. It was supposedly a foul on Edison, although 
to, to, it looked to me like Edison essentially kicked Bellingham and then Bellingham went on to score into the open net. What was your view? Mine is City was very, were very, very lucky. Matt's appears to be that City were very, very lucky. Do you share that? Yeah, absolutely. It was... It was not a foul, was it? I think if you go back and, and look at every well, it time... it might have similar... been, but it was a foul on Bellingham rather than Edison. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The goalkeeper was out of his area. He was getting in the way. And, it, you know, it, it, if if he had made contact with Bellingham, then surely the keeper would have been, uh, you know, he would certainly have been going in the book. And it turned out the other way around. It's just a crazy situation. And probably one of the quirks of the rules, really, in that the, the referee, as Matt mentioned, the referee blew his whistle instantly in that moment between um, him getting the ball and putting it in the net, which meant that they couldn't review the whole situation. They couldn't, they couldn't, it couldn't go to VAR. Now, if, if the referee had blown his whistle after the ball had crossed the line into the goal, the whole incident would have been reviewed and possibly they might have said, yeah, you know, that's a goal that's going to stand. So City are lucky. And we've seen this kind of tackle, you know, how many times? It's ridiculous. That really, that I mean, maybe because I don't know, has VAR changed referees' opinions or uh, limits what they would allow? But we've seen that happen so many times. No way was it dangerous. Yes, yeah, studs were, I suppose, up, but so were the goalkeepers. So I it's think like the way I was looking at it is, if that had been in the opposition's penalty area, if it had been Edison taking yeah. a chance and Bellingham had taken it off his toes and cleared it down pitch, yeah. would that have been a penalty? No, it wouldn't. No. Uh, I, I don't, well, I don't know, would it? I don't think so. No, I think it, it was under no on. circumstances. No, no. <laughs> as you say, it was a clean tackle, w- and then Edison caught him on the follow through. The the only thing I can think is the fact that the referee. I mean, the referee was miles away from the the incident, so he was like near the centre circle, as far as I remember. So he wasn't like close by to have an opinion on it. I don't think a linesman would have been any closer because it was right in the middle of the pitch on the edge of the penalty area. Um, and he just dis- dispossessed him. He jumped in the air, took the ball off, and and yeah, he had his studs up. But he, mm. he wasn't he wasn't anywhere close to going into the goalkeeper's leg. If he'd made contact with his studs or his boot on the goalkeeper's leg, he could have said, "Yeah, maybe it's a dangerous ch- challenge or a foul." But nobody made any contact with anything other than the ball, from mm. what I could see. Certainly not not um, purposely. If there was any accidental, then that's all it was. But it wasn't wasn't a foul. I don't think in any day of the week. So, oh, Bellingham has every right to to feel hard done by there, and you know, yeah. like, like like I was saying, we we've had those kind of decisions go the opposite way in certain games. So yes, yeah, it's um it's a bit of a swings and roundabouts for me. Good to see a little bit of Jude Bellingham, though. He gets talked about in very high regard amongst Birmingham City fans, and I personally have not seen much of him playing for Borussia Dortmund. And what we saw last night were some flashes of a very promising young English talent. The other talent on the pitch, which is probably where most eyes were drawn to, was Erling Haaland, who, I mean, some people describe this as a little bit of an audition for Haaland to sign for City. Some people described it as an audition for City to sign Haaland. I'm not sure which way it went, but how did he do, Matt? Did you see enough last night to convince you that he is the man to replace Sergio Aguero? Well, absolutely. He was awesome on the on and off the bar last night. You see he's got a really intelligence with his runs through the middle. He likes to split the centre-halves. Um, and like I mentioned, he absolutely bullied Diaz off the ball. And that is no mm. small feat. You know, we know Diaz is very, very, very physical centre-half and normally wins his battles with his, um, his centre-forwards that he's up against. But Erling Haaland just absolutely brushed him to one side. But luckily enough, Edison came out and, um, and saved the ball. But he also made an assist for Rice as well, which was a very, very clever pass. Nice little one-touch pass around the corner and Rice slotted it into the back of the net. So you can see 
see that he has got that intelligence. He's not just um, he's not just a target man. He can link up the play with his midfielders, and it just makes me think about what he could be doing with City, City's midfield if we had him as a centre forward. But then again, City this season haven't really required a striker, and Pep's already came out and said that he's um, he's not going to be he's not going to be buying a striker. If um, yeah, that's. So yeah. well, we don't, no, listen, hey, listen. Look, look, Pep Guardiola works in mysterious ways, right? He, um, he he can sometimes throw the the media a curveball and say, yeah, it's a load of bollocks. <laughs> but but, but um, if if like the, the prices that are going around about Erling Haaland are going to be accurate, then I can't see City's um, hierarchy because City do like as much as money we do have, we do have like um, like a bit of a system in order. Like we won't we won't be held to ransom by clubs. We've seen it with the Alexis Sanchez deal and stuff like that. You know, City's hierarchy if they are going to buy a player it has to be on their terms and obviously the wage demands and stuff like that because they've got a structure mm. at the club so yeah if um, if the price is right and all the, the stars align and everything comes into place then I'd love him at the club but you know it's just um, it's going it's to be one of them it's going to be an interesting summer now in, uh, in terms of City's transfer activities What do you reckon the conversation was that was going on Ian between Phil Foden and Haaland as they left the pitch because they seemed deep in conversation doing the classic thing where they footballers cover their mouths and they're talking which is one of my pet hates I really hate the fact they have to do that (laughs) but what what do you reckon they were talking about was it Phil Foden going we've got a really great McTucky's chicken in town you're going to love Manchester come inside that's brilliant (laughs) I think he was saying uh, uh, Erling I don't know if you know this or not but my uh, my online name is the legendary treasure and i've asked a question in aqa on football social daily tomorrow check it out and listen it's going to be amazing a little teaser we have got a question from the legendary treasure on aqa come up maybe it's there you go you see what what are the chances we'll get on to that very shortly i think for me the positive for man city last night was the strength of character that they needed after the equalizer i think we've seen City crumble at those points in the Champions League before but to go on and get that equaliser and get the win into the second leg I think is really important and incidentally since the first season that City spent in the Champions League 2011-2012 no team has scored more 90th minute goals than Manchester City they've scored 17 it's actually also City's first win in the um, first leg of a quarter final is it? Yeah, that's the first time we've ever won in the first leg of a quarter-final. Wow, stars are aligning. The quadruple is still on. Uh, let's talk about the other Champions League match last night. It was Real Madrid 3, it was Liverpool 1. A bad night for Liverpool in Madrid. Is that it? Is that the Champions League dream over for the season for Liverpool, Ian? Um, oh, I can't say for sure it's over because it's only half-time, but I think it's going to be tricky, isn't it? Um, with, uh, with having that deficit. and Real Madrid just were out and out stronger they were more on it last night Liverpool just seemed not sharp enough I mean the, the post-match um, analysis uh, after the game last night with uh, with Rio Ferdinand you know he was pointing out how the fact that the the defensive backline were just pointing in the wrong direction half the time and that was that was the difference quite often between them being able to um, keep up with the the Real Madrid players and not because they were facing the wrong way that time that, that <laughs> it was required to turn their bodies and go chasing the ball, they should have been facing the right way to, to expect where the balls were going to go. Because if Real Madrid are attacking, you expect that the ball is going to go in a certain direction up the pitch. And more often than not, the, the Liverpool backline were just not concentrating. And that was a lot of it. And, and Real Madrid um, have obviously done a, a job on, on Liverpool in terms of looking at how they play and, and how to, to, to break them down. It was no coincidence. You know, Real Madrid played a, a different game last night to, to what they would normally do in, in Spain. And a lot of long balls, a lot of high balls, basically gave them the Burnley treatment and, uh, and it worked. 
How much can we blame that centre-back pairing, Matt, of Nat Phillips and those in Quebec for the problems that Liverpool had in that game? And I've had for some of this season, I guess, as well. Bear in mind that Real Madrid were missing both their first-choice centre-backs as well, so I don't think Liverpool can bleat too much about injury crisis. But how much blame can we put on their shoulders for the performance? Well, you, you know, if, if Van Dijk was playing in that game, it might have been a little bit different. But, I mean, you, you can only play the, the, the personnel that you've got in your team. And I'm sure that those two players, you know, they, they've got enough quality between them to, to actually do the, the simplistic things like defending, like facing the ball, facing the right way, actually doing your defensive duties. And, you know, Trent Alexander-Arnold had an absolute stink last night. I didn't actually get to watch the game, but I've, I've scrolled through a lot of social media and mm. um, the, the Liverpool fans weren't happy with his performance. Um, he, he messed up a couple of times on the night. Um, and it's not helping his um, his his call for the Euros. You know, he's it looks like fourth choice right back at the moment for for England. Mm. But the the two centre halves they are they are inexperienced in a in a big game against Real Madrid as well. You know, Champions League knockout tie. You know, the, these these games they are, they have got a lot of pressure on them, and sometimes these players that haven't got the experience, you know, it, it can really show on the night, and it did it did for uh, for those two last night. But you know, it's. Um, it's, don't forget, it's Real Madrid in the Champions League away. It's not at the Bernabeu, it's at the little training ground they do, the little Estadio uh, Di Stefano, whatever they, they call it. Um, but it, it's, it's like I said, it's, it's Real Madrid. They've got illustrious history in the Champions League. Although, again, Liverpool have... But you can you can only play you've got on the night, and unfortunately for Liverpool, it didn't it didn't go to plan for them. But there still is there still is a second leg, and mm-hmm. they did get an away goal with their only shot on target, by the way. So that could be a little blessing in disguise for them. For me, it's more than the centre-backs of Nat Phillips and Kabak as well. Although they are at the level that, say, Virgil van Dijk and Joe Gomez would be, I think not having that strong centre-back pairing affects the whole of the team. And Dean Henderson as well, because obviously... Not, sorry, not Dean Henderson, uh, Jordan Henderson as well. Because, I mean, obviously, Jordan Henderson protects the back four. And then when you've got those attacking wing-backs, you've got Alexander-Arnold and you've got Robertson kind of belting forward then Henderson can drop into that back three so it gives them the freedom and without that freedom a you get Alexander-Arnold and Robertson getting caught out of position all the time when they do push forward because they haven't got that protection but it also means the midfield get overrun because they've not got the support of the wing backs and it means the front three who looked so potent last season just don't seem to get the same service so I don't think it's necessary Nat Phillips and Ozan Kabak's fault, although Kabak made a few howlers last night. I don't think it's their fault, but I think it's potentially the root of the problems that Liverpool are having this season. The fact they haven't got that strong the spine of the back. team. Yeah, yeah, it's the spine. Yeah, it's Navigator kind of, didn't play well last night either. And it's all stemming from that one place. So there's problems all over the pitch, but it kind of all seems to stem back to that issue at the back. I think to focus on one of the slightly more controversial moments, there was. Jurgen Klopp complaining about Real Madrid's second goal, believing that there was a foul on Sadio Mane in the build-up to it. Do you think it should have been pulled back? I mean, it was right at the other end of the pitch, perceived to be a foul on Mane just outside the box. Then Real Madrid went on the break, scored the goal. Do you think Liverpool have a case to feel hard done by there, Ian? No, not really. I think, um, again, you know, we're talking about VAR and how rules are changing. A season or two ago, this wouldn't even been a, d- a debate, would it? You wouldn't be pulling things back for so far, no. back down the, the pitch. You know, we'd be play on and, and get on with it. Um, the, the the biggest issue was um, when I was saying about how the, the defenders were looking the wrong way. This was the goal that they were highlighting. The defence, maybe they were looking back and expecting that, that to be pulled back, but they just were not 
concentrating. They weren't looking the right way. Um, Trent Alexander-Arnold got himself in a bit of a tangle, I seem to remember as well, uh, during it, but I'm not sure that would have made a massive amount of difference, really. But again, it was a ball over the top. Um, the Real Madrid players were were quicker, an extra few yards in front of the defence, and really just got in behind them and, um, mm-hmm. and, and put the ball away. So I think it's clutching at straws, really, to say that, well, we shouldn't have conceded that goal because Sadio Mane was was fouled a minute earlier than the ball went in the net. Um, I think the biggest concern here is the fact that Liverpool's defence was all over Mm. the shop and that's what led to the goal. They've got the away goal, as you said, Matt. And let's not forget, Liverpool have done this before. They came back from 3-0 against Barcelona, although they came back... It was an away loss, wasn't it? The 3-0 to Barcelona in 2019. They won the return leg at home. Uh, One of the best performances I've ever seen in the Champions League. Does it feel like this Liverpool have the same intensity and ferocity that that Liverpool side had? Because they were on their game that night. And Jurgen Klopp was saying last night that they made it too easy for Real Madrid in this game. And it feels like that's kind of the story of Liverpool's season. They just make it a little bit too easy for the opposition sometimes. Well, that game in that uh, that season, it was the night after um, City had just beat Leicester, you know, with a Vincent Company strike. Oh, yeah. And that pretty much, like, you know, it sort of like put a little bit of a nail in the coffin of their Premier League title hopes. And maybe that was one of the fires that they needed, you know, because like, if we don't win this game, lads, you know, we can end up with a trophyless season, like, and we've had one of our best ever seasons. So we need to make sure we're on this and we need to win it. Obviously, that's motivation in itself. And plus, you've got the Anfield crowd there on that night, you know, and we all know what Liverpool's crowd is in, in Europe on these big European nights, you know. The, the cop can suck the ball into the net on a lot of occasions. It's happened to us a couple of times when we played them there. Um, but there's going to be no crowd there this time and Liverpool aren't in the best form in the Premier League they've got injuries and there just seems to be a, you know I remember Jurgen Klopp coming out and saying like it's a, the, the mentality monsters over at Liverpool but this season they're not they've been they've been mentality mouses this season they've not even they've, they've not even put up a fight to, to, to retain the Premier League you know they've gone out of cup competitions early they've got the Champions League it's well, their only hope now of, of uh, picking up any silverware, and you know it's it's a it's a trophy that Liverpool have a, a mad connection with, but I just can't see him turning over the um, the the second leg. I think the the fact that it's going to be no crowd there is going to have a, a massive part to play in that. Madrid are a very very experienced side in Europe. They're probably just going to uh, they're going to try and frustrate Liverpool. Liverpool are going to have to come out and attack, attack, attack. And if 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 Real Madrid get one goal, one away goal, mm. it's the, the the ties put to bed straight away. So you know, it's it's for me. I think the tie is over and done with now. Let's not rule it out yet. You never know what Liverpool have got in the bag, and we'll find out very soon whether they will proceed to the semi-finals of the Champions League. Also, looking to join them are Chelsea. They face Porto tonight, and we'll talk about that game next on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Listen to the latest Premier League news, updates and match reports now. Just ask Open Sports Social. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. One Champions League left to look at for the Premier League team still involved in the competition, that is Chelsea. They travel to FC Porto tonight. Until this weekend, I would have put my house on Chelsea winning this game because they've just been efficient all season. I thought 1-0, 2-0 maybe, and that's job done for them. But after the 5-2 loss to West Brom in the Premier League in the weekend just gone, I wonder whether that changes the complexion of the tie a little bit, Ian. Possibly so. Um, They did look pretty unbeatable, and I I think everybody was surprised. Not only did they lose 
against West Brom, but by such a margin as well. Um, maybe there is something to be said for Big Sam's tactics after all, uh, much as we have uh, <laughs> mocked them from time to time. But uh, nonetheless, it uh, it did the job. Um, was it a blip? Well, we'll find out. Um, maybe uh, maybe we'll, we'll see a different Chelsea uh, this evening. Um, I do think it was a blip. I think maybe maybe Chelsea weren't fully prepared for the way that, that West Brom were going to play. West Brom seemed to do quite well against um, some of the bigger teams. It's it's the teams uh, sort of lower half of the table they seem to be uh, getting hammered by. So maybe they just were fired up for it and it was just one of those freak results. I fully expect mm. that Chelsea will be um, a lot more uh, careful than they were against uh, West Brom. That said, Porto are on a decent run of form as well. They've uh, they've they've um, had quite a, a good winning streak uh, in uh, in the um, domestic league in Portugal, and uh, I think in the Champions League as well. Obviously, they've been doing pretty well because they're through to this uh, this um, you know later stages of, of the competition. So, it's going to be a very close game, and and um, obviously both legs being played at the Estadio Ramon Sanchez Pijuan. Um, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but that's how I'm going for it. Um, Great pronunciation, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, so whatever that means. Uh, so uh, um, it's going to be um, it's going to be a close a close match. And um, in- interestingly, um, Porto have got a Chelsea player in their team um, with uh, Malang Sar, who's on loan from uh, from Chelsea at the moment. He's uh, in the squad tonight. Can he play? And then? he can play against his parent club. Oh, I yeah. Does that not count in European competitions then? No, apparently not. He's, a, he's, a, he's eligible to play and he's in the squad. Wow, I didn't know that. Um, a lot of the problems at the weekend, let's call them, against West Brom came from the red card for um, for Silva, which obviously isn't likely to repeat itself against Porto. But how do you expect Thomas Tuchel to react to this? It was their first loss in 15 games since he took over from Frank Lampard. I guess the reaction is almost as important as if the winning streak had continued. I don't sense that Tuchel's going to be the type of manager that will throw the baby out with the bathwater. We'll do a Jose Mourinho and kind of make seven, eight changes in his playing staff. What do you expect him to do to, tonight, Matt? Do you think it's going to be more of the same, more of what he knows? Well, I think if, um, obviously, the result goes a little bit different on the weekend, where we're looking at this fixture in um, a completely different way. But we, we do know that the Premier League can throw these results, you know, up at you, you know, the, anyone can beat anyone on their day in the Premier League, and I don't think that this should be like um, a thought-provoking situation, like uh, two calls tactics um, going to work and stuff like that. Look, we've seen how good and how efficient, like you mentioned, Jim, how they've been so far, keeping a lot of clean sheets and playing some decent football. He's a good man manager, too. Cause I don't think, like you said, he's going to throw the baby out of the bathwater and he's going to start making wholesale changes. He's going to stick with his best eleven that he thinks going to be able to beat Porto on the night. And he's he's going to go out there, and he's, he has got a point to prove now. You know, is is this just a blip, or is it um, is it something deeper rooted? I think personally, it's just a blip. I think they'll be they'll be fine tonight, and they'll um, they'll, they'll play the best eleven. And we we know Chelsea have got a decent squad, and even though Porto have got these um, these players in the teams that can, can hurt you and can frustrate you. You know, we've had we had him in our group this season. We experienced, you know, Pepe's bastardry. You know, he's um, he, he, he's he's just one of these these um, cult figures in, in the, the Champions League mm. that it can it can it can bring the worst out of your players. You know, and with the red card over weekend as well, you know that might be in the back of um, some of the Porto players' mind. You know, try and wind up Chelsea players, try and get one of them sent off, and try and nick a result off him. But no, I I, th- I think um, Tuchel he'll stick he'll stick with his best eleven. He won't make um, a lot of changes, and he'll he'll go out there and he'll, he'll try and get the result. That he needs i just looked it up by the way what porto stadium name means and it means stadium there you of go. the dragon yeah which is quite cool isn't it because didn't they used to have which which um there's the stadio 
uh, Del Luz, which is a stadium of light in Portuguese, isn't it? Which is where Benfica, Sunderland is. borrowed their name for. That yeah. Benfica. Benfica. Yeah. Benfica's ground. Yeah. Uh, on yeah. tonight's game, we know that the fallout from the West Brom game doing what? the likes of Manchester United and Atletico Madrid and Everton have failed to do this season by breaching that Chelsea defence. The fallout from that appeared to be a bust-up between Antonio Rudiger and Kepa, which Tuchel talked about in his pre-match press conference, saying that things got a little bit heated, they had to be separated. Is that going to have any impact on the preparations for this game, Ian? Because at the end of the day, I mean, Rudiger and Kepa are both players kind of on the fringes of the Chelsea squad. Neither feature that regularly at the moment. I don't think it's going to have a massive bearing on, on the game tonight, but obviously not good to have uh, players having a go at each other too often. Sometimes, I suppose, it does happen. It's a very competitive environment. Maybe it's good to uh, to get it out of their system and, uh, you know, everything moves on from there if it's been building up for a while. Um, but it shows passion, doesn't it? It, yeah, shows exactly. like a, it shows they care. Yeah. Exactly. I, th- I think you'd rather them... Maybe be a log ahead as long as it's not too serious and and it you know it, it carries on into the car park afterwards. Uh, then, not like uh, Kieran, what's well, not that Kieran Dyer Lee Bowyer? <laughs> yeah, yeah, or yeah John that Hartson kind of thing. Booting yeah. Al Berkovich in the head back in the nineties oh, yeah. as well. Yeah, you don't oh, yeah. you don't want that kind of atmosphere. I don't think in the club. But sometimes I guess stuff can boil over and then you know they talk it out and maybe that will improve things going forward. But. Um, very hard to say if that's going to have a bearing on, on the match tonight. But as I say, it shows that there's some passion in there, some will to win, and uh, and hopefully that um, you know they, 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 they will sort out any indifferences that they've had, shall we say. For Chelsea, Christian Pulisic will be back to play. He is fit despite going off in the West Brom game, apparently injured. He'll be available for them. Whether he'll play or not is another matter because Tuchel seems to mess around with that front three quite a lot. Um, the Porto coach wishes they'd won the last game rather than lost it against West Brom. He says the defeat serves like a warning. It sets alarm bells off and makes everyone more alert to danger. So he's not potentially that optimistic about Porto's chances tonight. What about you, Matt? I mean, I don't know a great deal about Porto. I don't think I've seen them a single time this season playing in domestic or European football. What kind of threat do they contain? Who do Chelsea need to be wary of in that team? Well, we, I mean, we played them in the, in the group stages, and the, the one of these teams, Paul, they don't have like any sort of like real like standout like quality players. They just work really well as a collective. They're a good, they're a good solid team, Porto, and they're here on merit. You know, they knocked out Juventus in the, in the last round. You know, and that doesn't just happen by accident. That happens over, you know, over, over two legs. And they're here on merit. And like you were just saying then about Chelsea losing the last game, they're a wounded lion, Chelsea, and Porto are going to be well aware of that. And like they, they do have a lot of experience at centre half, you know, with, with Pepe. Pepe's been there and done that so many times with Real Madrid. And like I said, he is a master in the dark arts. He does know how to grind a game out. And when you've got a player like him, you know, he's, he's their captain as well. He, you know, he, got a, you've got a player like him in your centre half, and he's got that much experience in these big European games, these two legged ties. It can only work in your favour. And, you know, if, if Porto do get a decent result tonight that they can take into the second leg, then, you know, it's only going to work in their favour. And, like, like you know, if they've not got like, the, like I said about the the uh, the standout quality players, but we've seen in the past, you know, these 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 teams when, when they won the Champions League in was it uh, two thousand and four, they didn't they had like you know Deco, Nuno Valente, and stuff like that, Castinho. They had some decent players, but no one was a real real standout talent, and they can take you know sort of like uh, inspiration from that that Champions League winning year because it's it's a similar sort of thing for them now. I think they've um, they've scored in every game. Uh, of the last twelve in all competitions, so they're uh, they're putting the ball away. Sergio Oliveira is the um, <clears throat> is the top scorer for them, but he's a he's a midfielder. He's like a a De Bruyne 
um, type character, really, I think. And um, Taremi is the uh, is the lead striker, but he's got nine goals this season, um, which is not a massive amount, really. But as as, as Matt's saying, their, their goals are spread among the team. Pretty similar to how Man City have been going, really, I suppose, in uh, everybody everybody um, contributing without having an out-and-out um, star striker to, uh, to rely on. I'm not expecting a particularly goalful match is goalful a word I think it'll be quite cagey tonight I think Tuchel will be keen to keep a clean sheet after that 5-2 loss it's going to be very very tight but that is tonight's game Porto versus Chelsea in the first leg of the Champions League quarterfinals right it is Wednesday we're going to move on to answering your questions next AQA on the Football Social Daily next Football Social Daily find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk To hear the latest Premier League news for your team, just ask Open Sports Social. Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily. Your questions answered in the AQA section of the show. It happens every Wednesday. You can get your questions in via social media. You can find us on Twitter at The Sports Social. You can find us on Facebook, Sports Social Official. You can find us on Instagram as well, also Sports Social Official. Search us out there. Get your questions in for next week. We've got three good ones to go at today. We're going to start with Daryl Noble's question, who says, What's wrong at Spurs? If they miss out on the League Cup and top four, is it down to the players or is it down to the manager? And then he says people seem to forget they're in a real slump when Pochettino left. I mean, I guess the difference for me between the slump they're in or were in with Pochettino and the slump they are in with Jose Mourinho is the style of football. You kind of tolerate a certain amount of poor results when the football's decent. When the football's bad, what you expect is the, the trade-off there is that the results come in. But where do you put the blame, Matt? Is it purely Jose Mourinho? Is it purely the players? Is it a combination of the two? Is it Spurs just being Spursy? <laughs> it's a combination of, of um, Mourinho's outdated dinosaur tactics, the players not being able to, to do the job that they're set out to do, and Spurs just being Spursy. It's it's like it's like a it's like a mad cauldron of all these things just all mixed together and it's 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 a tough one because there's, there's always a point in the season where you know where Tottenham fans start getting all a bit um, bit excited like whether they're a title contender for about a week mm. and then they get you know they get a, a bad result and then all of a sudden they just go on this 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 mad decline and they've got a cup final to look forward to albeit it against Manchester City you know and the League Cup at the moment Man City have got a stranglehold on it and it's going to take a, a special performance from Tottenham on the day if they are going to take it away from us. Um, Mourinho, he, he just he just really doesn't help himself for the things that he says in in his his press conferences. You know, when he he saw he doesn't protect his players. Like when you get like coaches like Pep Guardiola, and you, you never hear him publicly sort of like slander his players. But you know, Mourinho, he, he does come out with some really like questionable quotes, and you know, it, it must hurt his players. Like sat there watching him, thinking, you know, gaffer, you know what I mean? Like, you know. Get, help us out a little bit you know maybe we can adjust our tactics a little bit and like you were saying about the Pochettino situation there was in a lot of better like position like when uh, when Pochettino left like football wise you know at least Spurs had that to hang on to you know and when Mourinho came in I don't think Spurs fans would have quite imagined it you know to have gone this sort of way like, obviously mm. we know Mourinho's Mr Pragmatic he, he doesn't have a particularly um, attractive way of playing football but he tends to get the job done and he is a serial winner we've seen the amount of trophies that he's won in his career but 
you need the players to to be able to carry out these things. So I, I think it's just a combination of of all the things. I can't don't think you can solely put the blame on Mourinho. The players do have a lot to answer for themselves because they're the ones that ultimately go out and do the job on the pitch. And is it a mentality thing that Spurs? You know, like you said, Spurs being Spurs, it is a thing. We know it's a thing, and that must linger in the back of the players' minds. It's really hard for me to blame the players when you've got players that are performing so well this season in that squad. And I'm talking about Harry Kane and Son particularly. You've got Harry Kane, top of the goal scoring stats, 19 goals in the Premier League this season. Son's got 13. Harry Kane's got 13 assists to his name. Son's got nine. So you've got two players there that are in the top six of the Premier League top scorers for the season. I wonder whether that has ever been the case, whether there's ever been a similar scenario where you've got that potency up front and yet the team are in sixth in the Premier League and struggling for a Champions League spot. So when you look at that kind of evidence, and undoubtedly there are weak spots in the Spurs team, but when you look at that kind of evidence and you've got players performing like that, it becomes very different, difficult to point the finger at them, doesn't it, Ian? Um, <clears throat> it's certainly difficult to point the finger at the at the forward players because they're doing the business. Uh, clearly, they, they've got issues in defence. They're conceding too many goals, and that's why they're drawing so many games and losing the games that they should be winning. Um, as you say, it's not for the lack of potency up front. Um, and I wonder as well with Tottenham if there's something cultural within the the, the whole team there because they've they've had such. Um, I mean, they've they've won the odd thing here and there, but there just seems to be a kind of there doesn't seem to be an expectation within within the uh, inner echelons of spurs to win stuff it's not it doesn't seem to be mm. expected whereas with man city you expect them to win something with chelsea you kind of expect them to win something with man united you expect them to 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 win or have a go at winning something and same with liverpool with tottenham you kind of they come across as yeah we'd like to win but you know we'll be all right as long as we finish in the top 4 or, we, you know, as long as we have a good cup run, they seem happy with that outwardly. Now, maybe that's not the case inwardly, but it, I don't know. It just seems that that's been the way for years and years and years. As far as I can remember, mm. really, you know, Tottenham have always been nearly men. Um, it's the narrative, isn't it? It's like Harry Kane has to leave Spurs if he's yeah. going to win something. Yeah, and it just seems like as a cultural thing that maybe Daniel Levy and the rest of the, the, the way the club works some permeates through the 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 whole club in some way and I don't know they just don't seem to have that killer instinct that you wish that they had because they've got the players mm. they've got the players to, to be able to do the job let's move on to another London team and this question comes from as beautifully teed up earlier by Ian the legendary treasure who's a yeah, regular Erling Haaland yeah, yeah aka no Phil Foden it was I was going to get your story right um, yeah he a regular question answered so thank you Phil for this one he says I don't live in the UK clearly covering his tracks and don't follow football <laughs> closely outside of the top six. Um, can you give me a summary of West Ham's last three years, how they did it on the pitch, how they played, etc. I feel like this is probably targeted at me a little bit. How do so, you become maybe, blind maybe. to every every team outside of the top six? It's like, I didn't <laughs> know you existed. West, West, woo-hoo. I didn't know, didn't know you existed till now. You must only watch the games where top six play top six. And how do you predict that at the beginning of the season? Surely you only know that at the end. Anyway, it's a complicated thing to unpick but uh, over the last three seasons very quick summary of how West Ham have done because most people will know this and they'll be bored by it 16th 10th 13th were the last three league positions which I think kind of sums up West Ham nicely as a team it's 
a mid, West Ham are fundamentally a mid-table team. They're rarely involved in relegation battles, although obviously were last season. They rarely bother the top of the table as well, bar the odd interesting result or shock victory here and there. However, I think fundamentally the expectations of the fan base has changed in recent years with the move away from Upton Park, the club's spiritual home. So suddenly that move was made with the proviso from the board and the management that there would be investment in the future and West Ham would become as fast as farcical as this sentence sounds a European superpower Um, but the owners have fundamentally done very little to achieve those goals and that's caused a bit of an upset for fans a couple of seasons ago so the season where we finished 13th I think it was that was the season that Manuel Pellegrini came in um, along with the director of football which was an attempt to move the club in that direction didn't really work the wrong players were brought in the transfer fees were astronomical for very average players And I think it all stems from a lack of identity that West Ham have had for a fair few years. The club have always hung on to this idea that we're the academy of football. We're a place where young talent is developed and where football is more important than results. Well, in recent years, the football's been crap and the results have been crap. So that's kind of gone by the wayside a little bit. Now, under David Moyes, it feels like it's changing a little bit. He has got a style. He's got a unity that he's brought into the team he's been very clear about the type of player he wants to bring in as well rather than just spending money for the sake of it he's looking for the right options which has been frustrating at times with maybe a lack of reinforcements coming in but you can kind of see the long-term goals as well and he wants a, a heart in that team of young English talent so to kind of go back to what you're asking I think treasure is that West Ham's success this season being in that top four it's not like Sheffield United last season when they came into the Premier League and suddenly looked like they might challenge for a Champions League place or a Europa League place. But at the same time, it's not expected that West Ham would be up there and competing for the Premier League. It's a freak season, but not a complete freak season. Do you think that's a fair assessment, Matt? Well, yeah, it's it's like you was just saying there. Like the, the owners have clearly got like a vision and ambition. Like you was you were saying, it's farcical, Jim. But come on, man. Like you know, you. It's, it, it must be hard because I, I, growing up as a Man City fan, I would never have dreamt, you know, and we're in the position that we are now, you know, challenging for all these trophies and stuff like that. But the, these things can happen. We've seen, we've seen it with Leicester, you know. Look at where they are now. They're, they're, I'd say, an established now, like a top four challenging Premier League club. Leicester's, Leicester's ambitions now are going to be to, to, to be up there. You know, come May at the end of each season. But that's not by chance. Not, that, not, that's not by some not, freak of nature. Not. That's by the club being well managed and the success of the Premier League victory, which was a little bit of a freak. Then winning the Premier League, it was a perfect storm. But since then, the player sales and the money has been reinvested in a very sensible and logical yeah. way with a brilliant scouting. And all it can take is one good season for that that to start happening, for that to start to snowball. And as long as you manage it correctly. And if, yeah, and as long as you manage it correctly, you've got to have everything that works in the right direction. And if you know, it's a big if this season. If West Ham do make the top four, and if all the results go their way, you know, and then you're playing Champions League football next season, Jim, you're going to get a massive influx of funds, and you're going to have players that actually, you know, like you know, big sort of name players or like um, new up and coming kids like the, the other clubs are after going to want to come to West Ham and play for West Ham on the biggest stage and shine on the biggest stage because they could go, rather than go into a big team like let's say like you know City, Chelsea, Liverpool stuff like that, where they're going to be fringe players, they could go into West Ham side mm-hmm. and be the next star and actually shine on the biggest stage in the Champions League so if you do get top four next season that could be the catalyst that you need like your owners were, were promising the fans for you to be uh, we could say European Super Bowl but a well established you know, European challenging club 
Yeah, I think it, it does depend. I mean, that that qualification for the Champions League is huge. Comes with a hundred and twenty million pound bonus, if you like, compared to the twenty million pound that qualifying for the Europa gives you. Can you see it happening, Ian? I'm really sceptical about West Ham's chances of Champions League qualification. Got tricky fixtures coming up, and the song just keeps them going round in my head. Fortune's always mm. hiding, fate, dreams fading and dying. From a from a neutral yeah. perspective, can you see Ian? Um, can you see West Ham being in the Champions League next year? Yeah, I can. I can. They've, you know, they've been there or thereabouts through the whole season. Why not? You know, Leicester can do it. West Ham can do it. Um, absolutely. And it, the thing with it is that West Ham took on that stadium. Uh, you know, a, a, a massive stadium, the you know the the former Olympic Stadium, um, and you can't be a team in a stadium like that and just going through the motions. You know, you've got to have ambition. You want to be filling it. You want that stadium to be shown off, which one of the leading stadiums in the whole country, um, to, to be shown off to the world. You know, you want to be hosting international nights of football. They're they're great occasions, and and you want to be part of that. My only um, word of advice to uh, to any West Ham fan is to uh, not take it. Don't start taking it for granted, though. If if you do qualify the first year, it's like you know you, you kind of got to equate it to like a, um, a a team coming out of the mm. Championship and, and getting into the Premier League and, and and it being a whole new world. You just want to survive and get through it because I think there is that thing. You know, my experience quite a long time ago now when Leeds were in the the Champions League, they got in there and it it kind of be became sort of expected every year and that was the downfall of Leeds the Champions League was the reason that Leeds went into absolute meltdown because um, they had success in it got to the semi-final and they started to quote living the dream and spending this money on all sorts of crap (laughs) and instead of investing in their you know they they got uh, what 100 million quid they blasted and instead of spending it on their infrastructure and improving the stadium and all this kind of stuff, they spent it on Rio Ferdinand and Robbie Fowler. <laughs> and um, and so, you know, when you don't qualify, because they they budgeted that next year we're going to win the Champions League and they missed out, and you, see, quote, you just mentioned there, there's a big difference between the money between the different competitions. If you don't qualify for it and you've mortgaged yourself on that money, it's a very quick descent mm. through the uh, the football pyramid, and uh, and that's what happened to Leeds, and it was the Champions League that caused that. So uh, enjoy it; it's a fantastic experience. By all means, West Ham can qualify for it, and uh, and I hope it goes well because you know it's good to have different teams in there. You know, all, you know, I know there's a lot of people support Man United and Chelsea and Arsenal and Liverpool, but you know, it's good to see a different team have a go and, and see how they get on. Certainly not going to be taking it for granted. I had a little celebration this weekend because this weekend with the result against Wolves, West Ham were mathematically safe from relegation, which was a, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of a victory, <laughs> I thought, this season. Uh, one final question. Let's be really quick on this one. One nomination each. That's all I'm allowing. And it's from What the Footy, this question, which is another podcast on the Sports Social Podcast Network. You can find a load of great podcasts at podcast.sport-social.co.uk. It's a long old URL. Just go to sport-social.co.uk. You can find everything there and click through. load of different football podcasts and brilliant examples, including What the Footy, which has some great interviews from behind the scenes of football. But anyway, their question is, with Sergio Aguero leaving City, it's time to ask, who is the Premier League's greatest ever foreign signing and where does Sergio rank on the list? I'm going to give in to the temptation to let you go first on this one, Matt, and just gush about Sergio for a bit. I mean, personally, let me let me just uh, 
wind you up a little bit because Sergio Aguero, undoubtedly a great player. I don't think he's in the top five of foreign Premier League imports personally, but feel free to prove me wrong. <sighs> but there's been so many great foreign imports in the Premier League. I can, I can listen. I, I, I'm not going to look at it through blue tinted specs and say Sergio Aguero is the greatest foreign import to ever come into the Premier League. No, 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 no. He's been one of the best strikers to ever be brought into the Premier League. But we discussed this on AQA um, last week. We had a similar question. But for me, I won't keep. I'll keep this short and sweet. I'm going to go off the player that I was most entertained by. Um, when I was growing up watching the Premier League, and um, that for me is Thierry Henry. He was he was absolutely world class. He could score all types of goals, but he had this sort of arrogance about him, and he had the vavavoom thing going for him. So for me, yeah, it'd be the greatest foreign um, import into, into the Premier League it, it, for me to, to watch as a um, as a neutral would be Thierry Henry. Can I make? an outrageous statement that I kind of half believe and half don't. But if we're talking specifically about foreign imports for Manchester City, I could potentially argue that Vincent Kompany was a more important player for Manchester City than Sergio Aguero. I think strikers often get all the attention in this kind of poll. But I think you look at what Vinnie Kompany brought to the football club, not just on the pitch, but also off it yeah, as, as a leader, leader yeah. as a captain. He was hugely important for what City have achieved over the last decade. Yeah, absolutely. He's um, he was absolutely fundamental to our success. He obviously had a lot of a lot of injuries at Manchester City, but when he was on the pitch, he was our rock. He was our leader. He he he, he was with us in some of the best days that we've ever seen as Man City fans. And his mm-hmm. his influence cannot be underestimated whatsoever. Like you said, the strikers get all like sort of like the glory in the back pages. The Aguero goal against QPR is the best uh, moment in Premier League history, undoubtedly. But People forget about Vincent Company's goal against Leicester that practically brought us the Premier League that year. Um, his, his goal against Man United in the, uh, the practically it was like a pre- like a Premier League like title playoff. We beat them one nil on the night, and uh, we went into the final well the final two games ahead of Man United by a point. Um, he's just just he's, he's like you said his, his leadership off the pitch as well. You know he's great he's, he's great work with. Uh, the city kids and stuff like that, and the, the, the charities in the city, the uh, tackle for Manchester, the homeless thing. Yeah, he's, he's just a, he's just an inspiration, Vincent Company, and there'll never be another one of him, unfortunately. I was speaking to someone from Manchester City. This is an aside to this, and they were on a flight with Vincent Company, and I think they were flying to China for a pre-season. And Vinnie Company was listening to a podcast or something like that, and they asked him what he was listening to halfway through the flight, and he turned to him and said he was learning Mandarin. <laughs> which is, I think, which is like a measure <laughs> of the man. Yeah, yeah so, I mean, mo- most most footballers on a flight that long would sleep or I don't know entertain themselves. But he decides he wants to learn a bit of Mandarin before hitting China. Incredible, right, Ian? Wrap this one up for us for football. So, in fact, wrap the podcast up. Who's your greatest ever foreign import? Greatest ever foreign import. I'm, I'm looking um, at the bigger picture. Maybe he didn't. Um, actually achieve his best work in the Premier League. But when you look at greatest um, players to play in the Premier League, um, I'm going for Cristiano Ronaldo because um, we haven't Mm. had Messi in the Premier League and uh, we've been without many of the other Ballon d'Or winners uh, over time. Although Modric uh, did play for... um, for Tottenham for a bit, didn't he? But um, Cristiano Ronaldo, one of the world greats, and obviously it was his early part of his career when he was at Man United. I remember first seeing him being introduced into a game, and I think it was, well, it was quite a while ago because I was doing a, a football programme with uh, with Emlyn Hughes at the time. And uh, I remember Emlyn Hughes watching uh, this first match of, of Cristiano Ronaldo's, and he was he was just saying, you know, Hey, this kid, this kid's got talent. He'll go far, that one. It's like, uh, it reminds me of a young George Best. 
And um, I it was against Bolt. I think it was against Bolton that year, and I think he came on and absolutely tore it up against Bolton. Yeah, yeah, and he was saying, you know, that he's got. You can tell he's got something. You know, he's 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 got something extra that most players don't have, and you know, world class. Even at eighteen, when he first broke onto the scene, or maybe even slightly younger, but he was, uh, you know, he's always been. And, and as I say, in the Premier League, as far as Premier League players goes on, on the world scene, he's probably the greatest world footballer that the Premier League has has seen mm. to date, uh, unless Messi uh, Would he wraps rank his up career up. If you just take, yeah. If you just take his Premier League career, if you just look at his time at Manchester United, because mm. he was a he was a phenomenal player. Oh at Manchester yeah, yeah, United. he achieved lots, and, and he went on to yeah, and he went on to. I mean, he, he really flourished when he left, of course. But if you just take his Manchester United, Cristiano Ronaldo, does he still rank up there? I think he's certainly got a shout, hasn't he? I think he he he, he made a, a big difference. He was in a strong Man United team, and he was he was at the heart of it. And, and as you say, his best work came after Man United, but he, he did really get up to speed during that during that time. He scored 42, he scored 42 goals in 07 and 08. So yeah, that's not bad, you know, is it? It's not well, bad. It was, it, was the last, it was the last player to score 42 goals in a season in the Premier League. I don't think there, was ever, there ever has been one that's, that scored that, that many. Just in the Premier League? Yeah, no, 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 just not, in, in, when he was playing in the Premier League in all competitions, he scored 42 okay. goals throughout that season and won the Champions League that season and the Premier League. It, it was all right, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> So it's not bad, really. It's a, it's a strong shout. But uh, other than other than that, you know, I would I would agree with uh, with um, what you said about Thierry Henry. I think he's uh, you know did everything, won the Player of the Year, and uh, of course was leading part of that um, Invincibles mm. team as well. So. Very hard to look past Henry, isn't it? Right, that is it for mm. Football Social Daily today. That is it for your questions as well. Get your questions in for next week. Go via the social media channels. We put a little post out on Tuesday that you can reply to if you've got a question, but feel free to get us at any time. You can DM or whatever you want to do. Get your questions in for next week. Ian, Matt, thank you very much for today's podcast. Thank you. Make sure you click subscribe or click follow. You can get a fresh, free episode of all the latest football whenever you are ready for it. There's a new episode every day waiting on your podcast stream. And we'll see you next time for a new Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily from Sports Social. Find us on Instagram at Sports Social Official. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.